This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We talked uh, in some detail, uh, we did an overview of the Next Wave Festival, which is a biennial festival uh, with a, a focus on new and experimental and cross kind of cultural works and cross art form works that break down those traditional boundaries of a note theatre and visual art, uh, often with a, a focus on young and emerging artists. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by one of the next wave artists, Matthew Aidy from House of Unholy. He is presenting a work called Seer at Next Wave, uh, which is on at Darabin Art Centre. And Matt, am I right in believing that this is a work for an audience of one at a time? That's true. Why did you want to make such an intimate kind of creation? Um, I guess it's sort of uh, like, like you were saying about the Next Wave program, um, it's sort of exploring uh, sort of artistic process and sort of ways of presenting art in a, in a different format. Um, so I wanted to use the theatre, which I'm re- regularly in as a designer, um, collaborating with other theatre artists, um, to create an experience that's intimately for one in, you know, a large cavernous space that is the theatre, especially, you know, the Darabin Arts Centre out in Preston. And now you've, the fact that it's a, a dark and cavernous space seems appropriate because this is what, some kind of recreation of an Edgar Allan Poe story? Yeah, so it's sort of like the second one I've done of a Poe kind of short story poem. Um, the first one being Mono, which I did in uh, 2014 and 2015 here in Melbourne. Um, and this one kind of explores uh, a short story. It's literally two pages long, um, uh, as, you know, going with Poe's work, which is quite descriptive, um, which really um, talks to me in a, in a, in a way, um, aesthetically. Um, kind of exploring what what it is about rituals of death and um, how we deal with that as a, as, as, um, as a human being. And um, um, what I've found is how, for myself, how I completely ignore it and I'm quite ignorant to it and quite removed, actually. Yeah, yeah. interesting, because you said how we deal with death. I yeah. think the, for a lot of people, certainly in kind of uh, Anglo-Australia, it's how we don't deal with death, Absolutely. how we push it away, ignore it, hide it. Yeah, and that sort of... Um, that sense of um, ritual um, in kind of like a post-secular sense that we don't really have anymore. We, we found that when we're sitting in the room um, as a collective um, with the collaborators, that a lot of us were, um, yeah, all quite far removed from any kind of ritual and we kind of found that the, the funeral process or the memorial process was quite, in a, like in, our, in a Western sense, quite dry and, um, yeah, really... Um, different to what we were exploring in terms of like say an Indonesian way of um, ritualizing um, and celebrating their past um, so yeah it's, it's interesting <laughs> so the work that you, that you've ended up creating as you say it's for an audience of one at a time so yep. it's a, a very immersive work a, a very intimate and personal work yep. which is highly appropriate given that when you do have an experience with death it is very intimate it is very personal it affects yep. you at a profound level mm. how do you create that sense of profundity in an immersive theatrical environment so i use like um for me it's about sort of sensory deprivation and then also sensory overload in terms of like what you're receiving as a as an experience so a lot of my work is very minimal um there's a lot of space there's a lot of time to think there's a lot of time to contemplate and meditate on you know the questions that i'm kind of proposing for you so 
not necessarily looking for any answers. I'm also proposing um, a sort of a, a provocation for you as an audience member to like um, bring your own experience to it because as, as you're saying, we experience these things on, on our own terms in our own way and that's what I want the, the theatre experience to be like. So given that you are a designer, I'm presuming that there are strong design elements that have been utilised to, to shape and craft and create this experience, so sound design, lighting design and so forth. Yeah, so, um, yeah, obviously I always start visually um, and in a sense this one is very much so the same, um, similar to like Mono where I only worked with a colour palette of um, like red, green and blue, um, sort of breaking up that kind of prism of white um, and this this time I'm working with uh, black, red and white, um, sort of working with colours, the red red mutes every other colour except for black and white. Um, so looking into, you know, with my own kind of practice colour theory and stuff like that and ha what, how that affects us. Um, and then sort of using sculpture, there's a lot of installations and sculpture within the, the theatre where you kind of move around into different rooms, um, working with, um, you know, amazing performer and costume maker Benjamin Hancock to create like these kind of pagan headdresses that you wear as a participant and working with um, experimental sound artist Jana Quill. Um, people might know her from like liquid architecture um, shows and um, a long-term collaborator of mine, Andre, who's been working with me on the visuals. So it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a heavy video, uh, video component and sound component within that, yeah. Now, the fact that, that your colour palette is red, black and white uh, seems highly appropriate for, for a work exploring death and ritual and so on, given that mm. black is a traditional morning colour in some cultures, white is a traditional morning colour in other cultures and red, of course, is the colour of blood and life. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I also just, I mean, for me, like... I, those things come to me quite naturally. Um, like w working with black and white is always the way I work um, when I'm drawing and rendering my own sketches of Im images that I'm trying to see, especially with light. It's always, I, you know, I chuck out charcoal out a page and then I use an eraser to strike the light in. Um, so that kind of can express where the light's going to go and how, how, how we're going to see it and how we're going to feel it. So I work with that and then, yeah, obviously those kind of other metaphors come in with it. To go back to the source of inspiration for this work, which is, an, as you said, an, an interpretation of a, an Edgar Allan Poe short story yeah. and a very short story, almost yeah. a, not quite a micro story, but as you said, it's just two pages. What was it about uh, the, the short story Shadow, that, uh, a parable in particular, that kind of resonated with you and made you think this is the Poe work to explore as opposed to one of the, the better-known stories, say, such as a, uh, The Telltale Heart? Um, yeah, I, I guess, like, I've, I've read... A, a bunch of his stories and there's very like ones that we know very well um and i've kind of pulled gravitated towards ones that aren't so well known or explored um uh, them being short my attention span is also very short <laughs> um and um but like his shorter works are way more descriptive and they really paint a sense and a vibe and a mood and that's for me, that's the most interesting part is like how, how do I recreate that mood and how do I interpret that in 2018 as opposed to, you know, 1852. Um, so taking those kind of gothic, romantic, you know, which I'm kind of obsessed with, those sort of elements and then projecting them into the future and then with his story kind of working out like how can we project ourselves into an afterlife experience or simulate that somehow um, within the theatrical experience and... 
you know, I use the proscenium arch of the theatre as like this kind of portal between, you know, life and death or whatever you, ex- you know, however you interpret that. <laughs> the idea of taking the the familiar tropes of the Gothic, as you say, from mm. the, the 19th century and contemporising them is something that really intrigues me because so much of what we associate with the Gothic is the traditional aspects of it. So whether it's, I don't know, um, crumbling castles or uh, kind of mad monks or yeah. kind of uh, being buried alive, all of those kind of ro- dark romantic tropes. Mm. How, how did you decide to contemporise them and push them into, into the now? Um, so we did some sort of, within our explorations, we sort of did some sort of site visits. We went to um, Faulkner Cemetery where I live, like where I live. Um, yeah, I live at the cemetery. <laughs> uh, that's my place of home. I'm, that, real, I'm a real goth. Taking the goth to an extreme. <laughs> yeah. um, you no, live next door I, to I the live, I live near Faulkner Cemetery and we um, spent a day out there and we kind of, just split off in groups and let them explore the cemetery and kind of get a sense of like what it was and we kind of observed people visiting and and then there's these these um, very large kind of mausoleum structures that are you know dedicated to families or one person um, you know very um, very kind of Italian um, in their design marble and granite and and then there's this larger kind of shared mausoleum which is incredible it's it's incredible to actually go and see. Um, and you just wouldn't know it exists in Faulkner, but um, you know. And then I took that experience, and I went to Italy last year on a on a just on a vacation, and then I spent a lot of time, you know. And that kind of influenced a lot of things for me as well. So, um, you know, I think I've departed from the question, but. <laughs> Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, Matt, is in terms of the process of creation and being in Next Wave Festival, one of the things that's significant about Next Wave is it's not just about selecting a group of artists and saying, Mm. here, present work in the festival, which is running from today, the 3rd through until the 20th of May, but there's uh, a big focus on the development side of the the artistic practice, both professional and personal development, Mm. as well as rigorous artistic development over effectively a two-year process. For you as an artist, what's it been like to participate in Next Wave and to have that focus on developing your own practice and your own professionalism as an artist alongside uh, the opportunity to develop the work itself? Um, Well, I I didn't get the opportunity to do the Kickstart program um, last year, so I kind of came in on the... They kind of add in extra um, projects um, to the festival kind of later on, so I didn't really come onto the Next Wave um, clan until October last year. Um, and then I've been working in collaboration with Darabin Speakeasy as well. Um, so sort of co-produced by the two the, the two um, parties. So it's been interesting, yeah, to see how Next Wave work and how they kind of help you out. And there's a lot of uh, information that you can access. Um, as an artist, you can, you know, they really um, help you to, like, produce your own work as well as um, create it. So you know, from the money side of things, which is always, you know, a bit of a bit of an issue. Um, and then from, like, the publicity side. So, there's, yeah, Next Wave have been incredible incredible in that sense. Like, they've got a, such a great um, operation that they're working with. And a uh, nice shout-out as well to uh, the kind of the Darabin team too. Yeah. So uh, Matthew 80 and House of Unholy's Sia uh, as part of Next Wave is on from today, running through until the 8th of May. Um 
It's a, a kind of 45-minute uh, experience that runs every 15 minutes. So, And as we've said, it's for an audience of one at a time. Uh, and uh, so you can experience it from today, 4pm until 10pm, Friday through to Monday from midday to 10pm, and next Tuesday, the 8th of May, from uh, midday until 7pm in the main theatre at Darabin Arts Centre. Uh, now, don't get that confused with Northcote Town Hall, which is its yeah. own little separate space. The Darabin Art Centre is, he says, looking for the details on the piece of paper in front of him. What's the address? It's the corner of Bell Street and St George's Road. Oh, just next yeah. to the train station. Right next to the train station. Yep. Um, you'll see it. It's a beautiful 90s postmodernist daggy building. <laughs> As opposed to the Northcote Town Hall, which is a very beautiful, you know, other Kind of other Victorian of era. Yeah. Matthew Aidy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Richard. Charlotte Watson has curated an exhibition called Pink Frost at Tinning Street, uh, an art space in Tinning Street, Brunswick, which is uh, kicking off from tonight and running through until the 20th of May. Pink Frost is an exhibition informed by the the genre of New Zealand Gothic, which, Charlotte, I have to say, was entirely new to me uh, <laughs> until I heard about this exhibition. Am I right in thinking that the this kind of visual art exploration of the New Zealand Gothic is a relatively recent phenomenon, only from about the the 80s or so? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it, it, the term New Zealand Gothic was coined in about 80s, 90s, but you could look back and see the dark lineage much earlier than that, probably from about the 50s or so, or even if you really wanted to extend it right through to the beginning of European painting in New Zealand. Okay, so uh, it's a significantly well-developed kind of kind of thread running through New Zealand culture. Because certainly, I mean, if you think of New Zealand cinema, a film like The Piano is clearly kind of representative of, of the Gothic kind of undercurrent in New Zealand art and culture. Absolutely, and I think um, bringing up film is is about right because I think it's more strongly associated with film and probably literature than it is in visual contemporary art, but. Um, but and you know debate continues about whether there actually is a gothic in uh, New Zealand art or not. But um, yeah, to my best of my viewing and understanding, I think there is. So yeah. Well, one of the things that uh, fascinates me, uh, having been doing some reading last night, there's that uh, the the images that are projected of New Zealand are of kind of green, pleasant fields and mountains, and and uh, it's uh, a nice place to raise a family, and it's at the edge of the world, so it's going to escape nuclear holocaust, <laughs> all that kind of thing. But simultaneously, it, there's a sense of isolation, of uh, a treacherous wilderness, and so forth. So the, those kind of polarities, I guess, are one of the things that fascinates me. Why did you want to put on an exhibition exploring the New Zealand Gothic? Well, uh, excellent question. I grew up right at the very edge of the edge of New Zealand <laughs> in a, a very uh, quiet, flat city called Invercargill, which has not a lot going on. So you see a lot of the bleak and it is very much in that 40th parallel. So the weather is intense. Um, and I think living in Melbourne for the last six years and each time I've gone back to New Zealand, I've noticed the difference in the tone of the artwork and the cultural output between the two places. Um, there's obviously some crossovers, but I did notice that when I was going back that there was just a certain darkness that was perhaps more um, 
readily embraced or more easily sort of digested by audiences over there than perhaps what could be seen here in Australia or at least in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah, certainly one of the things that fascinates me about the Gothic in Australia is that it is often rejected. It's seen as um, uh, either kind of old-fashioned or clichéd. But to me, the, the, the Gothic in Australia, for example, speaks to a fundamental disconnect and discomfort with the Australian landscape. Kind of the, the Australian Gothic is so much about the landscape, the hungry landscape that eats people, for example, in Picnic mm. at Hanging Rock yes, or yeah. the myth of the, the white child lost in the wilderness painted in uh, in an array of images. Um, and so it, here the, the Gothic to me speaks to a, a fundamental discomfort with the fact that the landscape is haunted by people that we ourselves have displaced or killed. That's perfectly spot on. And I would say that there's a very similar vein in New Zealand Gothic as well. It is um, generally it's sort of split between uh, sort of a colonial and then like pre-colonial or post-colonial or like what is seen as post-colonial now. And it's interesting to to my estimation that New Zealand Gothic is starting to soften at the edges a little bit. It's less concerned with specific historical concerns. Of course, that's not for every person whose work could be considered in the New Zealand Gothic. There's all these different subgenres now, which is just sort of blows my mind. But um, yeah, it is, it is sort of becoming, I think, um, more ubiquitous, I think. It's sort of softening into a, a state of the uncanny, um, anxiety and unease rather than specifically regional to New Zealand. Now, I wanted to, before we start talking about some of the artists that you've uh, presented in the exhibition, I wanted to read you a quote that I found from uh, from an essay called Hello Darkness, New Zealand Gothic by uh, Robert Leonard, where he says, for all its supposed darkness and disruption, the Gothic is fundamentally romantic and reassuring. It's a mode of enjoyment, a way of taking pleasure. Would you agree that it is effectively romantic and reassuring rather than kind of challenging or dark or, or terrifying? Hmm. I have read that essay about five or six times and each time I read it, I change my mind on where I sit, whether I agree with what he's saying or not. Um, do you know what? I'm still undecided. I'm not sure I could actually give a definitive answer on that. Yeah. Cool, no worries. Well, let's talk specifically about Pink Frost, the exhibition which uh, that you've curated, and it takes its name from a song by The Chills from 1984, which we'll hear kind of at the end of the interview. But talk to us about the artists that you've assembled for the exhibition. Are They, they are all very much contemporary artists rather than going back to the, the 80s or the 90s? Or? Uh, yeah, no, they're all working now, all um, ticking away in their studios. Uh, some are based here in Australia, but most of them are based in New Zealand. And they just have such diverse practices. But for me, honestly, the curatorial thing was, does it make my stomach flip the work? So that was my sort of uh, guiding gut feeling, if anything, <laughs> going through. But um, yeah, there's sort of a diverse range of artists. Um, I have sort of focused on a, an element of the Gothic that look, looks at um, sort of the deep inside, so how we see ourselves and then how that self is sort of 
projected out on how we see the world around us. So it is, I've narrowed it down even more because there's just so many gothics. Well, <laughs> well way to interpret the gothic. There yeah. are, but certainly uh, one of the common threads in the gothic is the psychological. Absolutely. So, yeah. so you've picked up on that and mm. that, that internalisation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Freud would have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us about some of the artists who are in the exhibition and their work. Well, um, I think um, Sophie Scott is an interesting one. She's actually a high country shepherd for most of her life and her art making time is reserved for the winter, essentially when she's uh, snowed or rained in and can't do any work outside, which is a, a mode of working which I think is quite unusual for a lot of artists, especially if we're living in urban centres. Um, she lives in one of the most beautiful places. It's, she lives on a, uh, a large station just south of Queenstown. So she's up in those um, iconic mountains all the time, but and she doesn't see them that way. I'm already thinking that one way to interpret those would be kind of wilderness and empty landscapes and kind of mist and rain and weather and all yeah. the kind of like almost kind of Bronte-esque kind of uh, style gothic. Is that how she's interpreting the... Is that what her work depicts? Um, not so much. For her, I, I see more of a relation between... Um, I'm not sure if you know uh, Spate's Beer, but it's a, it's a beer brand in New Zealand where they have the stoic lone shepherd and he's out there with his um, cavalcade of uh, Clydesdales and his dogs and he's carrying the bear on the end horse, you know, just so he's got his supplies. But her works, um, they look at the land and she's working that exact job, but she completely removes any human element to them and they are quite brooding and uh, I want to say violent. I don't know if she would agree with that, but she actually... um, draws by using stencils so she's slicing these incredibly intricate stencils of the places that she lives and knows like no one else and why do you say violent just um for me just the act of taking a scalpel to an image of a landscape that she lives on and knows extraordinarily well that for me is i don't know and perhaps also the violent kind of removal or excision of people from the from the landscape. Yeah, as removal well. of people. So all figures, all the five thousand sheep that she spends her day running around behind, all of those are absorbed into the landscape. So it really is just about exactly what she lives on and in. Yeah. Another of the artists in the exhibition uh, that whose work intrigues me, I've not seen it, but I'm kind of intrigued by some of the, the themes of the work, uh, Francis Van Hoot's work, kind of responding. I mentioned earlier that notion of New Zealand on the edge of the world, so it will survive yeah. nuclear holocaust, which I think crops up in... Um, uh, uh, one of the one of John Wyndham's novels, uh, uh, the Chrysalids, but um, so uh, Van Hoot's work kind of references that kind of nuclear anxiety of, and growing up in the Cold War. Uh, yes, it has done. Yeah, he certainly has a, an anxious tone to all of his work. The specific work that he's put in for this show is actually an homage to Colin Khan, which is an homage to. James K. Baxter, so it has this nice lineage going back. He's, uh, he's, uh, he found some um, uh, some Kiwiana placemats, you know, table placemats in, in the op shop, and he's painted over them uh, his version of Colin McCann's 14 stations of the, of the cross. So it's a very monumental, monolithic, dark, religious work. It's existential, but Francis just has this way of 
he actually ma- manually, methodically reduces images right down until there's just left of what is remaining. It's, it's quite an extraordinary process. Now, what are the other artists involved in the exhibition Pink Frost, which you've cu- curated on at uh, Tinning Street in Brunswick? Uh, is there a sleep scientist? Oh, yes, Shannon, Shannon Williamson. Yes, she's a sleep scientist. And uh, the drawings that she's got in the show are uh, her in an altered state. (laughs) (laughs) Again, very appropriate (laughs) for the Gothic. Um, Yeah, they're they're really interesting backstory to those drawings. She was working as a sleep scientist over in Perth for a long time. And she had these long stints where she was working night shifts back to back and completely missing her partner at home who would be working day. Um, And these drawings are sort of... She actually... uh, (laughs) Her, she describes her circadian rhythms kind of going out of distortion and she also wasn't eating properly and her, her mind just sort of left reality and she was making these drawings as she was missing the intimacy of her partner who was at home. Yeah. So, again, that got kind of gothic sense of alienation, of uh, a distorted world as sleep deprivation sends you slightly mad. That's right. Or just, uh, I think, um, the willingness to look into some dark corners of yourself, yeah. It sounds like you've had fun putting this exhibition together, I have to say. I I have, actually. Um, some of the works I have known for a while um, and it's just been actually a, like a really emotional thing to be able to put them up on the wall because they're so beautiful. They're so beautiful. And an important opportunity too for uh, a contemporary art space like Tinning Street to celebrate the work of contemporary New Zealand artists because our countries are relatively close uh, and share so much in common, but kind of artistically I feel like a lot of Australian art gets exported across Uh to New Zealand, but not always so much the other way way back. Yeah, Tinning Street have been great actually. There were some challenges in finding the right gallery for this show. Um, but Tinning Street were sort of happy to take it on. And, um, yeah, no, they've been really good. I don't have anything else to say other than they've been really supportive, yeah. So Pink Frost, curated by Charlotte Watson, is on from today through until the 20th of May at Tinning Street in Brunswick, which is at Lot 5, 29 Tinning Street, um, entry via Ilhan Lane. Uh, and you can go to www.tinningstreetpresents.com for more details. Charlotte, thanks for coming in. No worries. <laughs> John Sheedy is the director of the short film Mrs McCutcheon uh, and actor Virginia Gay, who appears in the film, is also with us in the studio. Welcome to you both. Thank you Thank so you. much for having us. Oh. I'm Penny, she's ultimate. There we go. <laughs> you, did you rehearse that? No. no. Honestly, no. when you said it with such enthusiasm, I was like... Penultimate. It's, a, it's one word. of my favourite words. It's I mean, a great it's word. It's a great word. I really like it. So My, my favourite word is limber. Limber? Limber. I enjoy saying it. Limber. And I enjoy the feeling that it is in your body. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling limber. <laughs> John, do you have a favourite word? Yes. Skullduggery. Mm. I love it. Mm. Yeah. There's a bit of skullduggery going on. Bloody hell, mm. there is too. Even yeah. when you say it, you get this skullduggerous yeah. look about yeah. you. That's I, I feel like you should be saying it, from, I don't know, whispered from the shadows or mm. something. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, <laughs> you're here not to talk about your favourite words, but to talk Shame. about a delightful short film, Mrs McCutcheon, which is screening at the St Kilda Film Festival on uh, the 20th of May uh, at 2.30pm at a family-friendly screening and also uh, at uh, in the Australian Top 100 Short Films Ooh. session Ooh. as well. Look how thrilled we are by that. John, is this your directorial debut as a filmmaker? Yes, it is. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you decide to move from theatre 
into filmmaking? Um, I, I guess I've, I've always been keen to uh, explore the medium and uh, you know, in, dive a little bit deeper into visual storytelling. Um, it's something that, I, and I'm a, a film lover, you know, so I spend most of my time watching films and I thought, well, it's about time I make one. And, um, I, you know, having directed and cr- created theatre for 20 years, I went, uh, I'd better get cracking. <laughs> um, and I, I never found the time and then I had this little story about this person who wants to be called Mrs McCutcheon. A 10-year-old wants to be called a 50-year-old woman's name and then I was talking to Ben Young about it and he, I told him the story and he said, mate, let's do it. And so he penned it and then I got this lady here mm. and there we go and it's yeah it's a debut and it's it's yeah it's a it's a great little script i I remember reading it and being like oh this is i I was i was in sydney at the time and Mm. you sent it to me and i was like i will fly myself to melbourne to be a part of this show like because this is this is a really important little script and it's done so generously and with such a warm heart. It's an important story. It's worth telling, you know? And particularly worth telling at a time when, as we saw with the, the kind of moral panic around safe schools and, yeah. and, and these kind of claims that, oh, my God, kind of <sighs> children's gender is being warped by Marxist cultural no. theory yeah. And, yeah. and all of that kind of yeah. stuff, to explore truthfully and, and poignantly with mm. humour and pathos the, 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 the story of... Kind of ten-year-old uh, Tom who wants to be Mrs. McCutcheon. Yes. Kind of, it's uh, kind of. I was watching it last night, laughing and crying. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great. And I think that's that, and that's really important for me too to be able to. And one of the things that I I, I love doing when creating theatre or or stories for young people too and families is to look at a topic that's quite challenging and complex, but. It's got to have humour around it too and we have to celebrate and elevate the difference and have a laugh as we go along. And it doesn't take away from the the seriousness of it, um, but I think that makes it a lot more accessible, you know. For young people, and I think that's that was the ingredient for Mrs. McCutcheon. I always think there are these ways that that <coughs> change happen in the world, and there are. I always think there are, there's like this sort of two pronged attack in my head. There are the people who are being so bold and and militant, and I'm so proud of them, and I'm so grateful for them in my life. And the people who are political, and the people who mm. who have this extraordinary <coughs> gift with polemic, and you're like, oh, I will follow you to the barricades. And there are the people who I definitely, I know I fall into this camp, who are like, hey, over here, let me show you a version of the future which is unthreatening and filled with jokes and oh, yeah, wouldn't it be just calm and fun to be over here? And in a way, I always think in the, in the experiences that I've had, these amazing people with polemic are, are driving people over and I, I'm in this other field going like, yeah, come to this field. Yeah, just be just over here. So it's kind of like somebody's kind of one person is, is shouting and then you're standing there with a butterfly net waiting to scoop totally. people up. Yeah. Stick, yeah. And, stick and carrot, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, your character is Mrs Clutterbuck. Speaking of excellent words and it excellent is name. Isn't Clutterbuck great to it, say? It yes, is. it is delight. Um, so kind of she's the, the school teacher at the, the heart of this story, kind of yeah. um, 
and kind of how do you how do you go about making a character for a short film? Because when you're when you're acting on stage or when you're in a, a, a major drama, there's a lot of things that go into helping shape and craft a, a character. Yeah. When it's a short film and you have a, a fairly small script to go on, kind of how do you find the character and be truthful? Yeah, and limited rehearsal time, of course, because mm. I did actually just fly in and then go sort of straight to set. Straight to set. Um, so we, I, I mean, obviously you always use the script as your base and you go, all oh, right, so great, so she is, she's, she's got a huge beating heart, she's compassionate, she's funny, and, you know, you look at the, the big print, which is what uh, theatre actors would call the stage directions, like what, how is she described? Um, but I, what was so lovely about working with John was that there were whole bits where John just said, uh, can you just do some teaching of the class? And I was like... Mm. Okay. Yeah, great. So I got to um, I got to find her partly through improvisation and, and parts of those uh, improvisations have en- ended up in the film. And I think the other thing that actually is really important to mention is that the, um, the design of this film is so exquisite. Uh, and our designer, Marg Horwell, had such a beautiful uh, visual idea in yeah. conjunction with you about what Mrs Clutterbuck would look like. Bright colours, clashing patterns. So sort of like Miss Honey from... Matilda, if Miss Honey were also crossed with your slightly weird year eight replacement art teacher who always had lipstick on her teeth, was your point to yeah. me. She was like, <laughs> John was always like, the one who you're always like, ah, oh, just maybe, just need to maybe clean those incisors. I was like, I know her, I love her. So, in terms of the film itself, it is going to really sink or swim on the performances of the two kind of young actors who are oh, yeah. cast in the, the roles of Mrs McCutcheon and Trevor. And Trevor. Uh, and kind of their chemistry is beautiful. The performances yeah. are lovely. How did you find these boys? Yeah, that, those two boys are very special, Wesley and Alec. Um, and that it was hard because it, they're really complex roles and complex themes that they're having to tackle and access and deliver on in, in a performance. So we spent many weeks workshopping and reaching out to uh, young people, theatre groups, um, and went through agencies. And we had a good, I think, month of workshopping and workshopping and reducing it down and shortlisting and shortlisting. Wesley uh, Patton, who plays Trevor, uh, was is from Sydney, um, and that's a it was a difficult role to cast because there aren't many uh, young Indigenous boys who are in performance. Um, so I ended up going through Sydney Theatre Company, ringing my friend Serena Hill, and said, "Look, I'm trying to find this," and she presented. Two boys oh, that great. had just done Secret River. Oh. And so I flew up and met Wesley and he auditioned, you know, for me and he was he was gorgeous. He is <clears> I <throat> I think he is a truly terrific actor and I think he yeah. is so spectacular on screen. Yeah. He just shines. He, he really does. Glows, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. he? He does. He's got the most luminous and, eyes. And Alec is just so uh beautiful and gentle and he um, he's a bit of a, a, a thinker, that kid, and the two of them just got along. We got them in the room together. Yeah. We got them to do little games, theatre games and workshops and things, and um, they just got on. And so it, it was amazing to see them on camera and then when they're off camera, they, they're just kids and hanging out and kicking the ball and yeah. that was it, you know. So it was, it was, yeah, it was great. 
Now, John, um, devil's advocate question for you. This is your first short film. It's already been uh, kind of getting awards and screening in festivals around the world. And do you think that kind of your um, that you you are at an unfair advantage compared to other kind of first time filmmakers, given that you could call on the likes of oh I, I don't know um, Nadine Garner, kind of Virginia Gay, Mark Caldwell, kind of uh, <laughs> people like that. Oh look, absolutely, it's it's. Um, I mean that's that's a bonus, you know. And but these are people; these are great collaborators uh, in the arts that I've worked with for many years. So there is definitely an advantage. Um, you know, so it's absolutely if, as a first-time filmmaker, you can go. But you know, Marg Horwell has that was she is primarily a theatre designer. That was so her first film. That too, was her wasn't first it? film, yeah. and you know, the whole aesthetic of that world of Mrs. McCutcheon was really important. But um, as you, as you'll see, uh, so absolutely, there's a you know an advantage to having worked already with these wonderful performers. And when you write a script or look at, it, you go. Yes, Virginia Gay. Yes, Nadine Garner. Yes, Neil Pickett is the principal. Blah, 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 blah. A wonderfully dislikable kind of role from Neil. In How's that centre part? <laughs> that oh, yeah. centre part is what kills me. It's the saddest centre part in the world. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, so much to delight in in the film. It's already, as I said, won awards. It, uh, it has won 22 awards. Is 22, that true? Yeah, 22 there's awards. There's only four on the website. No, <laughs> it's, it's won 22 awards. You need and to we're update the website. <laughs> Festival 78. That's amazing. <laughs> that yeah. is incredible. Yeah. We, we made this film like we, I, I sometimes say to John Shady, remember that little film we made in the middle of the night in like, was it North Carlton Primary School or somewhere? North Fitzroy Primary School. North Fitzroy Primary School. In winter. With 60 child extras in the middle of mm. the night in winter, all yeah. of them done up to the nines in a school dance yeah. outfit. I, I mean, I remember thinking, this, this, is, this is a slog, this bit. You know, this is like, it's cold, these are children, it's late. That that slog has taken us all over the world. <laughs> it has. That's incredible. And now to St Kilda for the St Kilda Film Festival, the festival itself running from the 17th to the 26th of May, uh, a wonderful celebration of the art of the short film. And you can catch uh, Mrs McCutcheon, the film that we've been discussing, which is delightful and I highly, highly recommend that you book to go and see it. So it's screening at St Kilda Town Hall on the 20th of May. Uh, there are sessions at 2.30pm, uh, which is the family friendly screening and at 4.30pm as part of the Australia's Top 100 Short Films Package session number nine. There's a lot of short films to see, a hundred of them, but this is mm. definitely one not to miss. It's been a pleasure having you both in. Thanks for having us, Thanks for darling. having us. Thank you for Always making good. such a delightful film, I have to say. Ah. So, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, if you uh, want more details, stkildafilmfestival.com.au on from the 17th to the 26th of May. I've been chatting with uh, director John Sheedy and actor Virginia Gay. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, love. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.